What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibeto, and this week we are going to talk about a roundtable we held with companies on racial diversity data and workplace diversity in general. And then we discuss the new antitrust lawsuit brought against Google by the U.S. Department of Justice. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. We've spent some time discussing racial diversity data, who discloses on it, who doesn't, and how that affects the way investors engage with companies on the issue of systemic racism in the workplace and unconscious bias in hiring practices. To better understand how companies are addressing these problems, a number of my colleagues, Julia Jaguer, Andrew Young, and Sam Suping, set up a roundtable discussion with numerous large multinational companies from around the world. The discussion focused on what the companies were doing when it came to workplace diversity and how they were working toward providing more data to investors on the subject. The findings are soon to be published in a report, but before that comes out, I want to talk to one of the authors, Sam Suping, to get a feel for how the conversation went. And the first thing I want to know is what companies were saying about why there's so little public data on workplace diversity today. For most of the companies, Publicly disclosing that information, they were there was a bit of hesitancy internally. I think there's the risk of or potential exposure to legal risks and negative public perception, you know, reputational risks if the current data they have uh, isn't good or is 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 considered unflattering. I think there's also this fear of, um, you know, being the first to report information and how that will be um, interpreted um, um, by, you know, various third parties. Yes, so companies are nervous about the Twitter fingers, about the media, about those that might say the diversity at your company isn't great, but we still have to write our pieces and focus on you, company, because everyone else hasn't disclosed data yet, and you have. And Sam told me that some were actually concerned about the rigidity of Things like government-mandated disclosures on workplace diversity data, such as the EEO-1 report in the United States that requires the disclosure of company employment data categorized by race or ethnicity, gender, and job category. There is a required uniformity in these reports, and companies felt that this could lead to misrepresentation and for them to be unable to manage the narrative around their data. But there was also concern about when the data was collected at companies and how safe employees felt about disclosing that data. Because remember, all diversity data is self-identified, and not everyone feels safe in their workplace. One of the participants really raised a question about um, you know, when are companies actually collecting this data? Are they expecting um, their employees to report it? Is it they, as part of the hiring process, you know, new joiners? And do new joiners feel comfortable sharing this type of information um, with the company? Uh, you know, ha- do companies or have companies created a safe space for, for employees to do this? And if they haven't, then that means they probably aren't getting a proper um, data set. So that would be something for those who want to keep companies accountable to focus on. Not just that they are disclosing data on their workforce diversity, but ensuring that data is collected responsibly and isn't misused or misreported. There's also talk about how disclosing data really doesn't amount to much unless there was an actual change made internally at the company. A company can both have a diverse workforce 
and not have the proper internal diversity, equity, and inclusion programs to allow that workforce to thrive and feel comfortable for the long run. As Sam told me, many companies felt that the programs companies use for hiring and keeping a diverse workforce intact were as important as their reporting mechanisms on that workforce. All of the companies really echoed that an important part of addressing diversity in the workplace is is around uh, recruitment and retention. So, uh, uh, you know, that is investing in a, pipe, a talent pipeline um, that focus on, you know, maybe marginalized communities um, in school partnerships in, in areas where, um, uh, you know, marginalized communities are, are, are you know, maybe more located. Um, I think one interesting, a couple interesting points were around um, career web, web pages and how they um, put themselves out there as uh, employers um, in, in order to attract a diverse slate of candidates. Sam told me that the solutions companies thought were most worthwhile focused on ensuring there was an inclusive culture. Things like prayer rooms for certain religious affiliations, safe spaces for LGBTQ communities, and accommodation for employees with certain developmental challenges. And culture may seem amorphous and unquantifiable, but for companies or investors trying to promote more diversity in the workplace, culture is a major pillar of focus. Studies published in the Harvard Business Review, American Sociological Review, and other sociological journals have found in constant interviews and surveys that candidates for jobs are mostly selected on how well they fit into the ethos of a company. One recent survey found that more than 80% of employers worldwide name cultural fit as a top hiring priority. Top priority, that means it's above your qualifications, above your past history, above your resume, all those things we all work so hard to control when we're looking for jobs. So what Sam and her fellow authors found that companies who are working on changing how they set up their culture are doing best when it comes to workplace diversity. And while it can be cringy at times, it's the companies that view themselves and promote themselves as, quote, diversity champions that usually do better in sustaining long-term workplace diversity. This is again according to a study by the Department of Sociology at Harvard. But how does a company promote themselves as diverse champions at a time like this during a global pandemic that is causing record unemployment? And when more companies are allowing their staff to work from home, how has that changed how diversity and inclusion are incorporated into your workplace? On um, attracting talent, uh, and I guess maybe on the positive side, companies felt that they could expand, you know, with folks working from home and, um, uh, you know, companies coming to realize that, you know, employees and staff can actually be quite productive uh, in a remote setting um, opens up the opportunities to recruit in different locations, not just locations where they have, uh, you know, physical offices. Um, so it, 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 it could allow them to build a much wider talent, uh, you know, pipeline. Um, on the other hand, some folks had expressed that because we're in a remote work environment and people aren't um, you don't get that face-to-face -face interaction uh, or in-person interaction as you would in the office. Um, they, they did express some concern about losing touch uh, with their employee base. Right, and having a mentor at work is extremely important for retaining workplace diversity. According to the off-cited Harvard study I keep going back to, I'm just going to read you what they have to say. They say it pretty well. So, so here it is. Mentoring programs make companies' managerial echelons significantly more diverse. On average, they boost 
the representation of black, Hispanic, and Asian American women, Hispanic, and Asian American men by 9% to 24%. And right now, it can be hard to be a mentor over Zoom. It's difficult to see what's going on with your employees, what's going on with your mentees, and it's also difficult to see what the hardships those in marginalized communities are facing during a pandemic. So while it can, while the COVID pandemic has allowed a more diverse workforce to be recruited and employed, it has also meant that others are marginalized and issues that you might be able to see in person are kind of pushed to the sidelines. At the end of our call, I wanted to see how Sam felt about the conversation she and my colleagues had at the roundtable. So many of our discussions around race and racism and diversity center around how willing participants are to change, who is looking to make a move, and who is just using willful ignorance to kind of shield the issue at hand. And so I wanted to gauge Sam on what the virtual room was like during these calls. Did the company seem sincere, and were they looking to make broad changes to their practices? I thought it was, uh, I think it was a really great discussion. It was, it's, uh, it's great to hear companies actually taking this seriously. Um, and I, I get a sense in general, in, you know, my personal life among my, you know, friends and, uh, family, uh, and as well as professionally in the workplace and, and looking at these issues that they're really, you know, I am optimistic about change. And I think hearing, um, all of these companies talk about, um, the deep conversations that they are having with each other uh, within their, their businesses up to the executive level. Um, I, I, I did get a sense that um, these were real and it wasn't just, you know, lip service. Um, they, they really are trying to make, um, trying to figure out how to, to, to move forward um, on this particular topic. Alphabet's Google has been in the news a lot lately. The U.S. Department of Justice filed an antitrust case against it on October 21st, 2020. The big problem, according to the DOJ, is that Google has too much control over the internet value chain, which hinders competition in the marketplace. The internet value chain works like this right here. There is an operating system on all our devices, and that operating system has an internet browser, which you use to search for all your various vices and intellectual pursuits. The thing with Google is, it has a restrictive commercial relationship with basically everyone to ensure a default position for its search engine. For both Apple and Android, for example, the two major mobile operating systems, Google is the default operating system. When you go into Safari and you search for something, you're actually using Google. A default bias creates a massive advantage in any market, but perhaps especially for internet search, where more traffic improves search results and generates more data from users, which then improves targeted advertising dollars that you can get. So the DOJ decided to bring litigation against Google. And to better understand this case, I called up Andrew Young, who covers the tech sector for us, and I asked him why and how this case might play out for Alphabet. If there is a potential fine, that that doesn't really impact the company to a large degree. It's paid so many more than 8 billion euros of fines in, in uh, the European Union already, and that doesn't seem to have impacted the company's business. Um, so from that point of view, no. But from a change in practice point of view, it can impact the company. Um, the Department of Justice can enforce a change in practice. So where it, where Google is the default search engine um, for many of these browsers for certain operating systems 
Um, if it uh, if it enforces a change in practice order, then um, consumers might have a greater influence on which browse on which uh, search engine they can choose. That sort of choice that you can make as a user of the internet might look like something that happened in Russia in 2016. Russia's federal anti-monopoly service said that they're going to have a choice screen required for users of Android where they can select their browser of choice and basically they can select between Google and somebody else. And while the US DOJ might not look to Russia for its precedent in this case, it can look to what the European Commission did. In 2017, the Commission ruled that Google was anti-competitive in its requiring phone manufacturers to install Chrome and Google Search as a condition to license its Android OS. Google paid about a USD $5.1 billion fine and was forced to self-remedy this bundling practice. The DOJ also previously forced Microsoft to unbundle its Windows OS and Internet Explorer browser when it was selling its computers. Okay, fine. That all happened previously. That all happened pre-2020, pre-societal madness. I wanted to know from Andrew what might happen this year. What might happen with this case? Um, you know, in 2020, we've had the the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings. Um, this was um, for Alphabet, for Amazon, for Apple, and for Facebook. Um, we also have the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, um, has requested all of these companies to provide information about all the acquisitions they've made from 2010 until 2020, and they're going to review all of these acquisitions for their antitrust implications. So um, in, the, in that broader context, I think it's also useful to note um, how the European Union has addressed the issue. They have also um, uh, enforced antitrust cases against Google three times in the last uh, 2017, 2018, 2019. So three cases, um, and they fined Google over 8 billion euros during that time. But the, the commissioner in the European Union has, has found that these cases or has stated in an interview that these cases might not have been very effective at all in stimulating competition. So actually, it looks like the next step for the European regulators is, um, is a regulatory one, um, not a litig litigation um, against um, Google. So um, next year, there's going to be a, a new... Uh, law in Europe, Digital Services Act. We don't know what's in it yet, but that's likely going to impact all of these companies and the way, for example, that they handle data and who has access to that data. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Sam Suping and Andrew for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. And I wanted to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us. It always helps and it's a guiding force. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. That helps as well. Have a great rest of the week and I'll talk to you soon. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940.
and this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.